You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 24th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller, coming up on today's programme. One year on, Ukraine endures. Also ahead, China has ideas about how the war might be brought to an end, and our week-long series on Ukraine, one year on, concludes with a special edition of our What We Learned feature. And later in the show... I'm Tom Webb, 1,800 metres up the mountain here at San Moritz. I'm at the winter edition of the Nomad Roaming Collectible Art and Design Showcase, which has just opened its doors to me at the historic Grace Hotel. I'll be able to tell you all the treasures that's inside. All that coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. One year ago today, Europe awoke to the beginnings of the biggest state-on-state land war to have been unleashed upon the continent since 1945. Though Russia's invasion of Ukraine had really commenced in 2014, Russian President Vladimir Putin had seemed more or less satisfied with the seizure of Crimea and the installation of a permanent frozen conflict in the Donbass. This, despite Putin's protestations that it was merely a special military operation, was an attempt to seize a country bigger than France and home to 44 million people. One year later, Ukraine endures, and I'm joined from Kiev by Lada Roslitsky, founder of Black Trident, a defence and security consulting group in Ukraine. Um, Lada, we've been speaking to you pretty regularly for a year and more now. If you think back to February 24th last year, what was your first indicator that this was really happening? Well, it was a morning phone call informing me that the war has started and I started arguing with the person who called me and I said the war started eight years ago and then uh, people started calling me from all over the world and then I realized, okay, we're prepared, we knew this was going to happen and now it was really um, a a bit of a panic uh, moment but then once I had realized that that this is not unexpected, it became livable. I think it's impossible to imagine for people who have not had this sort of threat unleashed upon their country, their city, their home, uh, what that might feel like. So I don't know at the time whether you were thinking terribly far ahead, but maybe in that first week of war at some point, did you have a thought about what this might look like one year from now? And, And how different was that to the situation Ukraine is now in? Well, it's exactly in the situation that uh, I expected it to be in. Uh, Thank goodness, because it could have been much worse. And uh, the international community has a huge responsibility to bring this Russian aggression to a halt and focus on constructing a global security system which will prevent this type of genocidal, barbaric behavior uh, once and for all. Are you supr- so you're not surprised then by how well Ukraine has held up and the, the, the stiffness of the resistance that Ukraine has mounted? 
No, I'm not surprised. I'm very proud of the Ukrainians. I'm surprised, quite frankly, by the apparent fear and uh, bureaucracy or, that is being used as an excuse from Ukraine's allies to really move. That surprised me. I thought that, that the West was stronger. Where do you see the balance in the Ukrainian mood now? I mean, I guess the the two uh, elements of it, on the one hand, whatever gratitude there might be for the quantities of money and weapons that have been provided to Ukraine versus that what you were alluding to there, that bureaucracy, uh, that hesitation, which we've seen most recently over issues like battle tanks and fighter planes. Yes, it's a very fine line between appreciation and anger and peace and uh, an outright World War III. And we're walking that fine line right now. The Ukrainians are certainly frustrated, uh, but give give us credit because we have been under daily terrorist attacks bombings uh, it's it's horrific living here so the amount of, of positive energy the high level of the feeling of community is really contagious and and something that i don't even think anybody let alone putin expected that that ukraine had well, among the other things that Vladimir Putin does not seem to have expected is the leadership of Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. I think it's pretty clear now that Putin thought that Zelensky was unpopular, uh, that he wasn't serious, uh, and that he probably wouldn't be a factor. Um, he, he has, of course, become uh, one of the best known and most admired people on earth in the last 12 months. But from the perspective of inside the country, how important has his individual leadership been in holding Ukraine together? Well, his leadership is uh, really on a psychological uh, level. So really keeping the, the mood up and saying the right things at the international conferences and meetings that he's having. Uh, the uh, general who's running the show at the general staff, Zaluzhny, is uh, also somebody who has to really receive a lot of credit for, for keeping this country together. So the entire team has uh, a lot of work to do. They're doing a great job, but uh, there are certain issues and fissures in Ukrainian society and the international society that if they do not address correctly could lead to um, extremely dangerous violence uh, internally in Ukraine. We are now nearly out the other side of the first winter of this war and what we can only hope will be the last winter of this war. Ukrainian winters are long and they are cold. Are you, what's your assessment of how well the morale of Ukraine's people has held up during this winter? Well, it's outstandingly amazing and strong. Of course, uh, thousands of Ukrainian soldiers have lost their toes and, and fingers, if not even entire parts of their, of their feet, because they froze off. And uh, many, many cities, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, at least in the southern areas and eastern areas of Ukraine, uh, continue to be with no heat and no electricity. So people are dying. It's it's a very gruesome uh, manner to be living in. And also they don't have not only access to electricity, but water is something that people in Ukraine are still really hunting for. We in Kiev are quite lucky, if you would like to call it that, 
that the electricity was actually finally turned on just a couple of days ago. But it's cold and everybody is nervous because we don't just just because the lights went on doesn't mean that they won't be off in, in 30 seconds. So it's a very unstable environment. It is cold. You, the international community's humanitarian aid has just done an out, outlandish uh, uh, effort to to save millions of lives, and they they continue to do so every single day. So defense, military aid aside, the humanitarian without this good vibration from people with integrity, Ukrainians probably wouldn't be as strong as they as they are. Lada Roslitsky in Kyiv, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Monocle's Emma Searle with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. The UN General Assembly has passed a resolution condemning Russia. It calls for an end to fighting and a withdrawal of Moscow's troops. An overwhelming majority of countries voted in favour. Ukraine's foreign minister has urged those who abstained, including India, to change course. North Korea has test-fired four strategic cruise missiles into the sea during a drill. State media reports the exercise was designed to demonstrate Pyongyang's ability to conduct a nuclear counterattack against what it calls hostile forces. And the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration says Boeing has temporarily stopped deliveries of its 787 Dreamliner jets as the company conducts additional analysis on a fuselage component. Boeing can't resume deliveries until the FAA is satisfied the issue has been addressed. Those are the day's headlines. Back to Andrew. Thank you, Emma. You are listening to The Briefing. One unmistakable and understandable motif of the last 12 months has been the hardening of Ukraine's attitudes towards Russia. As late as last March, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said he was prepared to countenance neutrality as part of a peace deal with Russia. His more recent statements have been much less compromising. Nevertheless, the peace proposals continue to be pitched, the latest from China. I'm joined with more on this by Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue. Um, Isabel, China has put a 12-point plan forward, but if you boil that down still further, what basically is the sketch here? Well, yes, to call it a plan would be being generous, really. It's a sort of statement of um, of uh, multiple virtue, but it, there isn't really much of a plan that anyone would uh, would take very seriously. So um, abandoning the Cold War mentality that that's code for stop supporting Ukraine with weapons, United States. So that's not going to happen. Respecting the sovereignty of all countries, that's a very good idea. That would require Russia to withdraw from Ukraine. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, the ceasing of hostilities. Well, yes, I think everyone wants hostilities to cease. But from the Ukrainian perspective, you know, the spring offensive uh, that they are are planning, they regard as pretty important and potentially game-changing. They may be wrong, but that's that's at, at, on the military side their intention at the moment. And they would not be favourable to a pause which would allow Russia to revive its rather flagging military operations. So they don't see that in their immediate uh, interest, although, you know, of course, uh, ceasing hostilities is the ultimate aim. Resuming peace talks. So I'm not sure that we ever had peace talks. That's point number four in the Chinese proposal. And I think, again, from the Ukrainian perspective, and the Ukrainians are being quite polite about all this, but it's quite clear that from their perspective, until Russia really needs to talk, there is no point in talking. There's also, there are some 
points here that um, are, are simply missing. Who would be the guarantor of any agreement reached? You know, the problem with Russia is that they have talked in the past. They have signed agreements, as indeed has China. But how do you make sure? How do you enforce those uh, those agreements? How do you trust the word of a man who has repeatedly broken it? So. There's a there's a long way to go here, I'm afraid. Uh, the, there's one phrase in there which I was hoping you might translate for us, not from the Chinese, but from the Diplo speak, which is the one where they say all parties must stay rational and exercise restraint, avoid fanning the flames and aggravating tensions and prevent the crisis from deteriorating further or even spiralling out of control. Is that their way of saying that their enthusiasm for Russia's adventure is not limitless? Uh, I think it's saying, please don't use your nuclear weapons and stop threatening that, even even on the battlefield. But it's also saying, uh, don't you know, for, to to Ukraine's backers, you know that that the, the China is is blaming both sides for this. So the the fundamental message in this peace plan is that if only uh, Western liberal democracies would, would democracies would stop giving Ukraine arms, then the whole situation would be much easier to resolve. Now, <laughs> that's that's in the diplomatic speak too. But yes, there is an alarm about and and this may be part of china's calculation you know you wonder who this message is aimed at and it's aimed partly at the uh, emerging economies where this position of you know china as a kind of balanced grown up uh, peacemaker you know is has more credibility it also you know a little bit of, of public um, restraint on russia how far that goes behind the scenes we don't know but we have had public exchanges in which china has said no nuclear weapons don't be silly you know in in rather more diplomatic speech than that and russia has had to acknowledge china's concerns so we can assume i think that china you know is setting a, a few limits on on putin but is also concerned that if putin becomes truly desperate then china's restraint may become ineffective is it fair to say that china's attitude one year into this basically remains that we don't really care who wins this or what the outcome is we just would like it to stop I think China it clearly would like uh, Russia to win. I mean, if you sign a, a pact of limitless friendship with with a country that uh, is quite useful to you for lots of reasons, you don't really want it to go down in flames, um, even if its uh, behavior is a little embarrassing. And if you look at the diplomatic to and fro over the past year, and indeed in the past week, where we have Wang Yi all over uh, Moscow, uh, meeting Putin, meeting, you know, China, Russia. Uh, Russia's military chief, um, saying how very, very deep and strong the friendship has become over the past year. Have we seen any senior Chinese figures in Kiev? None at all. If China wants to be taken seriously as as a peace maker in this situation, I would strongly suggest that the appearance of, of at least Wang Yi, if not Xi Jinping in Kiev, would go a very long way to uh, advancing China's credibility, or at least accepting a phone call. There has been nothing between Kiev and Beijing in the past year. Uh, just finally and, and quickly, that is a point made by NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who doubted China's credibility as an interlocutor on the basis that China cannot even bring itself uh, to condemn what Russia has been doing. And I know you've mentioned already that treaty of limitless friendship, etc. But is there not any prospect at all that China might change its mind about this? Um 
Well, I guess, it, you know, we don't really know what China's risk appetite is and what it would regard as, as unacceptable. I think at the moment, it's, it's, it's at least as far as its domestic opinion and a certain amount of emerging economy opinion goes, it's trying to keep its hands clean. Look, we are not involved in the war. Look, we're urging everybody to be reasonable. Um, and I think that they're trying to limit the damage to China as a result of that. There's the al slightly alarming suggestion that China, from the United States, from, from Antony Blinken, that China was considering military aid has been firmly rejected. So perhaps China is not considering military aid. And certainly at the beginning, um, it was their, their position was no, not one bullet. So I think that would, were China to, to consider military aid, then, then we would be in a very, very different and more dangerous game. But if they can keep out of that, um, and and limit the uh, the amount of aid they obviously do offer Russia, then I think that's as far as they will go. They will hope to keep their hands clean enough that they can maintain a a, a, a position for the future where they might be a more useful interlocutor. Isabel Hilton, thank you as always for joining us. This is the briefing. The concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. Now, all this week, we have been playing a special series of reports reflecting on different aspects of Ukraine's year of resistance. And the final episode of that series is this week's regular What We Learned monologue. It's remit expanded for one week only to reflect on what we've learned since last February 24th. Stephania, mama, mama, Stephania. We learned this week that the producers had been having ideas again. No, don't. No, no, no. no, 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 no. Don't, don't. Really? In fairness, it doesn't happen that often, and really, what can you do? Always grateful for the support of the General Muttered Agreement crew at such trying times. We learned that the producers had noticed that February 24th, when this monologue was first due to air, precisely coincided with the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And they reckoned that a reflection on what we have learned from 12 months of Russia's 72-hour special military operation might therefore be in order. So thinking back 12 months, we learned that the word of Russia is not necessarily its bond. 
We were as shocked as you were, because we had learned as late as February 20th, 2022, that Russia had absolutely no designs on Ukraine whatsoever, that the merest thought of invasion had not even contemplated the vaguest prospect of crossing Russia's mind, and we learned this from no less an authority than Russia's ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov. I will start from basic things. There is no innovation and there is no such plans. We learned four days later that the ambassador may have neglected to check his spam folder. After months of preparations, the Russian president Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. Speaking on national television, Mr. Putin urged Ukrainian troops to lay down their arms and go home. Well, that was the idea. We have been learning since then of the extreme reluctance of Ukraine's troops and Ukraine's people generally to fulfil their assigned role in Vladimir Putin's plan, and we have learned more broadly of the eternal wisdom of the maxim usually credited to the Prussian Field Marshal Helmuth von Moltke, along the lines that no plan survives contact with the enemy, later paraphrased by the American boxer Mike Tyson, who noted that everybody has a plan until they get smacked in the mouth. And we learned, indeed, that among those Ukrainians declining to play their part in Putin's plan was Kiev's own heavyweight champion, now the city's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko. The Russians have plans to occupate Kiev already three weeks ago. But our army destroyed whole plans of Russians. And Russians, I am, as mayor, told to you to talk to everyone. Never ever Russians to come to our city. Better we die if give the city to Russia. But we would, from the very first weeks of Russia's onslaught, learn a perhaps more startling tutorial in leadership from an arguably less likely source, specifically the narrator of the Ukrainian releases of the Paddington Bear films. No, me mila. And indeed, Ukraine's 2006 Dancing with the Stars champion. We learned that among Vladimir Putin's many misjudgments was one about the metal of his opposite number, a comedian who had campaigned for Ukraine's presidency substantially by starring in a sitcom in which he made fun of Ukraine's presidency. Hello? Good morning, Mr. Kolobarochka. Can I connect you with Angela Merkel? Yes, you can connect. Hello, my congratulations. We decided to take your country to the European Union. Oh, fuck! Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, wow! We learned that there are, despite what we had learned from the experiments in this field of one or two other countries, advantages to having a professional showman in charge, as President Volodymyr Zelensky embarked on a virtual world tour by video link, expertly tailoring his routine to the local crowd. To the Parliament of the United Kingdom, he went heavy on the Churchill. We will fight in the forest, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. We will fight on the banks of the rivers and we are looking for your help for the help of the civilized countries. To the Congress of the United States, he reminded of a previous date that would live in infamy. We need you right now. Remember Pearl Harbor. Terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. 
remember. And we learned that he'd done his homework on Spain, where he compared Mariupol to Guernica, on France, where he compared Mariupol to Verdun, on Germany, where he spoke of a new wall Moscow was attempting to build across Europe, and invoked a previous entertainer-turned-president who'd had something to say on such subjects. The former uh, actor, US president, um, Ronald Reagan, when he was here in Berlin, he said in his Berlin uh, speech, Mr. President, tear down this uh, wall. So let me tell you the same thing now. Councilor Schultz, please uh, tear down this uh, wall. Interpreter having a long week, clearly, but you get the gist. We learned or were reminded that a leader without followers is just a fellow taking a walk. President Zelensky is not the only Ukrainian whose resolve in the face of a dreadful threat we have learned to admire. There are, give or take, 44 million more of them, from whom the rest of us can only hope to have learned something about courage, and if we can't learn that, we can perhaps at least absorb the lesson that little good ever comes of indulging or appeasing tyrants in the hope that they'll calm down eventually. And over the 12 months to date of Russia's absurd, petulant, monstrous rampage, we have learned of no better way of summing it up than the words of Ukrainian border guard Roman Hribov, serving with the small garrison on Snake Island in the Black Sea early in the conflict, who were instructed to surrender by the crew of a Russian warship. And you shouldn't need a translation for that. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. The roaming collectible art and design showcase Nomad opens its doors to the public today for its winter 2023 edition in Saint-Moritz. Set in the historic Art Nouveau Grace Lamagna Hotel, it will host gallery installations, special exhibitions, panel discussions and other events for the next three days. So we have sent Monocle's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, up the mountain to find out more. Uh, Tom, how are things in Saint-Moritz today? Is it cold and alpine? and snowy. Hi Andrew, it's actually quite mild. Um, you're interrupting my lunch by the way. I know I said <laughs> at the top of the program that I was 1800 meters above sea level. I ventured 200 meters further to 2000 meters at the new Langosteria restaurant which opened its doors last month uh, bringing Italian fresh fish up the mountain. I'm reviewing it for the magazine. I've never taken a cable car to get fresh fish before but I'm glad I did. I've got Alaskan king crab in front of me and i asked it did have a speedy journey uh, up here i'm also here for the new travel podcast we've been talking about the concierge that launches on march the 8th so this restaurant will feature uh, on that i must also tell you that earlier i was at the ice samaritz that's a car festival where 50 vintage cars are raced on the ice 
when I say vintage, the 10 that I looked up started at £1 million and went up to £20 million. And that's on top of the frozen lake here. And I, I said it's a lot milder. Event organisers are a bit concerned because the ice was melting around my feet. Um, they're quite an insufferable crowd, though, I must say. So if it does melt and it disappears under the ice, it's no bad thing. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about Nomad. For those who don't know Nomad, what actually is it? So they call themselves a showcase because they showcase the best of collectible art and design around the world. And they bring it all to one place. Um, they do this twice a year. This is the winter edition. Uh, in July, they'll go to Capri. And what you see here are items that you can buy. Uh, the people that come here are mostly clients with private homes that want to furnish their homes with rare collectibles. And the Nomad name gets the... the the name from the fact that it's nomadic. It, it strives to go into interesting venues, uh, even though this is the sixth time in San Moritz, it's the sixth venue. Uh, and that's uh, the Grace Hotel, as you mentioned. And it's incredibly popular. It's just open. Thousands have already streamed in uh, and people are spending a lot of money. So what are some of the highlights of Nomad that you've been able to see so far? Uh, so a few items, Andrew, I'll, I'll um, make it easy for you. We'll start with the easy ones. Um, original Picassos, Man Rays, Francis Bacon's, they're all for sale. They're museum quality pieces as well. Uh, they all start about six figures. My favorite here is the Alexander Calder. Those are handmade tapestries. They're about six by six. Uh, they are lining the walls. I should say the crumbling walls of the Grace. Um, what's funny to me is that the hotel was supposed to have been completed in December uh, after a 10-year refurbishment for this festival. And spoiler alert, it's not finished. So it's completely covered in polythene plastic sheets, plastic carpets, people are tripping over with their champagne. I mean, you should have seen the look on their faces. The, the guests as they turn up and see the main entrance is actually a tradesman's entrance off the main road through a polythene tunnel. Uh, but I spoke to the founder uh, uh, Giorgio Pache, who told me that he says it adds to the charm and the guests in the galleries love it. But I mean, they kind of have to because they don't have a choice. This is a building site. Uh, and what's next for you? I, I mean, I assume that you won't be sort of putting up your hand to buy a, a six figure Picasso. <laughs> well, actually, uh, there's also performance art here. You'll, you'll be jealous, Andrew. A little later, there'll be a wearable art performance. Uh, Cosimo Bocelli, who's worked with a local copper artisan, is going to wear armour made of copper and strut across the hotel. And then she will die, apparently. So stay tuned for that. I'm hoping it's not going to be something out of the menu and she actually dies. But it wouldn't surprise me here. Uh, it, performance art, though, there, there's no way that can be stopped. No. You're just going to have to sit, smile and clap. Um, that's going to happen in the main venue. And I should say uh, the main venue is going to be hosting Monocle on Sunday. We're doing a two hour special uh, live with Tyler Brule and very special guests. And the main room, the table they've given us is designed by, designed by Martino Gamper, which concerns me greatly because I have a history of spilling water on expensive tables. And this one <laughs> is the most expensive of them all. Uh, well, tune in, everybody, to that special edition from from the Big Fancy Table in San Moritz. Tom Webb, thank you very much for joining us. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Marcus Hippie. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamanchu, and our studio manager today was Steph Chungu. The Briefing returns on Monday at the same time, midday London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>